0: plushcare.com slash weight loss
1: the Vale dance festival returns to the stage july 29th through august 9th conversations on dance returns for a fifth year to bring audiences behind the curtain and closer to the festival artists they love Our live podcast recordings have just been announced and will be running from July 30th through August 9th, totaling 10 events. Guests include Justin Peck, Sarah Mearns, Pam Tanowitz, Caroline Shaw, Lauren Lovett, and many others. I will be on maternity leave this summer. These live events will be hosted by Michael with special guest hosts throughout the festival. Tickets are on sale now and can be purchased at veildance.org slash conversations-on-dance or click the link in the description of this episode. Be sure to subscribe to Conversations on Dance wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any of the content coming from the Vale Dance Festival. I'm Rebecca King-Ferraro.
0: And I'm Michael Sean Breeden. And you're listening to Conversations on Dance. Today on Conversations on Dance, we are joined by Meg Booth and Claire Williamson, who offer us an inside look behind the scenes of what it takes to keep a major performing arts organization running successfully beyond the stage. Meg has been the CEO at Performing Arts Houston since 2018, while Claire joined as Director of Education and Community Engagement in early 2020. They take us through the ways they put together programming years in advance, engage with local artists, and how they executed a decision as difficult as changing the name of a decades-old institution. Performing Arts Houston is now accepting applications for its Houston Artists Commissioning Project through June 12th. Three to four working performing artists or groups within the greater Houston metro area will be awarded commissions to create a new 20 to 25 minute work to premiere in festival format on the Cullen Theatre stage at the Wortham Center in spring 2023. For more information, visit PerformingArtsHouston.org or click the link in the description of this episode. Claire and Meg, thank you both for joining us this morning. Um, I'm, we were talking to you earlier this week, Claire. We hadn't had you on yet, and it kind of like a lightning bulb went off. Meg, of course, um, we talked to you way back in 2018, and it was fantastic having you on. So why not do it again, especially with the both of you? There's so many interesting things going on um, in Houston, and we want to hear about it. But let's just start a little bit um way back and we'll go towards your both of your beginnings in in arts like when when did you first become interested in the arts and was dance always a part of that claire go first
2: sure um well thank you both so much for having us we're really excited to be here and to talk about performing arts houston and all the great things we have going on um, in the upcoming season um yeah, I uh started dancing when I was three years old. I did a lot I did creative movement and um I danced uh with Ballet Austin. Um I'm an Austin native. Um I love Austin. Yeah. <laughs> uh keeping it in Texas, you know, staying not not straying too far. Um And, uh, when I went to college, I really, and in high school, I really got interested in musical theater. And, um, so I did a fair amount of, uh, like theater jazz and jazz dance. And, um, and then moving on to college, I decided, you know, I wanted to pursue a career that, that wouldn't, uh, necessarily be, um, as, dependent on auditioning. Um, right. <laughs> so fair, uh, fair thing to do. <laughs> um, so I, uh, ended up uh, getting a degree in communication and then I became really interested in education and moved into, um, community-based arts education. Um, and from there, uh, pursued some uh, work in museum spaces and um, other community-based organizations, and made my way to Houston, found um, Performing Arts Houston, and um, it's been a great fit. And I'm the Director of Education and Community Engagement here.
0: Nice. Can we talk for a second? I think it's interesting. I, lo- I mean, I love just like the, the realness about like, who likes auditions? And sometimes you just, I mean, Rebecca famously never auditioned for ballet company in her entire career. So oh my and, <laughs> congratulations! No. Gotcha. And I did bare, bare, bare minimum. Like, I mean, it's just a pretty, um, like, it's a pretty uncomfortable experience for most people. Um, but obviously you still really cared deeply about the arts. When did you kind of like make that decision that like that daily grind of like, okay, let's go like put myself out there again um, wasn't really worth it and you could contribute in a different way?
2: Honestly, um, it was... Mostly through the college audition process. That was sort of my limit. Um, I had, I'd kind of been a big fish in a small pond in Austin. So I didn't have to do as many auditions and sure. just um, even just putting all the materials together and putting yourself out there so many times. Um, I was like, I don't think I can do this for my career. This is, um, this is, takes a lot of emotional, you um, Resilience and right. um, confidence, and just uh, perseverance. And I was like, I think I would like to support people who have the strength to do this right. day to day.
1: <laughs> that's awesome. We need people like you. You're essential to it as well. <laughs> leader. That's yeah, it. Meg. Let's hear a little bit about your origin story in the arts and um, what ultimately left you, uh, led you to performing arts, Houston.
3: And it is great to be back on Conversations on Dance. So um, I think similar to Claire, the arts are a vocation. And uh, in order to be a creative person and put yourself out there, you do have to have such a strong calling um, uh, that I didn't have, although I've always had a calling to the arts, I've only ever been interested and wanted to do the arts. Um, I have a BFA in photography, thought I would be an artist. Um, I was in a number of exhibits, but did not, it was just was a little uncomfortable and I didn't want to create for anybody other than my friends and family. Um, and I didn't like the idea of people that I didn't know kind of seeing a part of me, if you will. So one way or another, I, I fell into it almost, um, like literally, and uh, interviewed, moved to Charlotte, North Carolina, not knowing what I wanted to do, um, trying to figure out where in the arts was my place, and um, kind of tripped into North Carolina Dance Theater, which is now Charlotte Ballet, and started my trajectory in performing arts there.
0: I'm wondering, for both of you, um, did you have any, did any leaders or, or did you get any guidance at a young age that there were these possibilities, like these roles that you now exist in? Um, might you have pursued that a little bit more clearly, you know, rather than just, I'm sure there are a lot of people that like they love the arts and they think that the only way is to be a performer or to, you know, create, but there are so many beautiful ways to contribute and essential ways. Like how, how can we better let young people, Artists know that it's not just about the creative process.
3: I love that you're mentioning you're bringing this up, Michael, because there are so many careers for arts workers. Right, you don't just need to be the artist. There are so many designers and the crew, um, and front of house managers, venue managers, um, operations directors in theaters. and I think you you touch on something that we really do need to bring focus to that um, the arts, at least in Houston, the arts are a 1.1 billion dollar industry a year. Mm-hmm. Um, we employ so many arts workers uh, from you know rock and roll mu- rock and roll music venues to performing arts theaters to museums. There are so many different careers in the arts that are extraordinarily fulfilling Mm -hmm. Um, committing your life to, to beauty and uh, dialogue through arts is um, I think one of the most noble professions you can choose. So Mm -hmm. yeah, we need to talk about it more.
1: That's interesting. That's a great point, Michael, because I think that I didn't really understand the existence of these sorts of jobs until being in a ballet company and getting to know the people who did them. And so I find, I find that so interesting. Do you find that the people that you guys Work closely with kind of have similar trajectories where they were artists to begin with and then decided to kind of take this different path? And how did you find that people generally discovered these positions?
0: Claire?
2: That's such a great question. I'm just thinking about, I think, you know, even just within our own team, there are a lot of folks on our, in our organization who kind of have similar histories, but there are also folks that kind of stumbled into this, you know, our Mm. director of artistic programming um, studied to be a kindergarten teacher and um, just ended up getting a position, a part-time position in, um, uh, I think box office management during college and fell in love with it that way, kind of stumbled into it. So it's really, really wonderful to hear the different stories and to hear how people's passions developed. Some folks, you know, studied music in college and, you know, fell into um, arts administration through internships um, or same with theater, things like that. And then some other folks, you know, learned about technical theater in high school and, you know, said, this is what I want to do. Um, yeah. so it's, it's always wonderful to hear those stories. Yeah.
3: I'll, I'll also add that our director of development here is a, um, recovered percussionist, if you will. And I remember from my, um, 15 years at the Kennedy center, the vice president of development there had, um, it, you know, she gave a speech at one point that nobody, you know, grows up wanting to be a director of development, but it's an extraordinarily rewarding career, particularly in the arts, where you're helping create an opportunity for people to philanthropically participate in moving mm-hmm. arts forward. And um, and it can be a very fulfilling, sustaining career for, um, for anyone to pursue development of an arts organization. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, there are a lot of jobs where you don't have to be the one on the sp- in the spotlight, uh, but you can support the creation of the work that is in the spotlight.,
1: yeah. Meg, let's talk about your time at the Kennedy Center. That's how we had the honor of meeting you and working with you. Um, you were the director of the of the dance Department. Is that correct? Yeah,. yeah, yeah. So you were very instrumental. In fact, the number one person to go to, to create the programming for the dance that was seen at the Kennedy center during that time. So tell us how that opportunity came about and some of the work that you did there and how how did, how does your background in ballet also influence what you were bringing into the Kennedy center?
3: Um, great broad question. (laughs) I threw like uh, three in there at you. (laughs) I was thinking this morning that, um, when we last talked, I think we had the Marinsky in the opera house, mm-hmm. the Susan Farrell ballet was, was, um, rehearsing in yeah. residence in the building mm-hmm. and Tyler Peck was upstairs with our demo, mm-hmm. um, program. And, uh, we had just so much going on. I think we had a contemporary dance company in the Eisenhower too. I can't remember, but, um, so
1: much dance was happening. It was awesome.
3: <laughs> it was, there was a lot happening that, that week or those weeks, but, um, uh, it was an extraordinary experience and, and, you know, the platform of the Kennedy Center lends itself to amazing things happening and, you know, being the nation's center for the performing arts, they fortunately, um, uh, committed to a very robust dance programming and it was extraordinary to be there, um. And you'll have to ask me some of the other questions. Because Sorry. <laughs> how,
1: did you, how did you choose? How did your dance background help you to choose um, what you would bring to the Kennedy Center?
3: Uh, um, that's a great question. So prior to being at the Kennedy Center, I was at um, North Carolina Dance Theater, now Charlotte Ballet. And then I went up and worked for one of the arts management agencies in New York and we had a, in the dance division, IMG, uh, we had a huge roster that included Biltie, everything from Biltie Jones to um, Trinity Irish Dance and Miami City Ballet at the time. Um, and lots of things in between. Um And then I worked for uh, General Managed for Twyla Tharp Dance. And in between there, I uh, company managed for White Oak Dance Project. Well, uh, the Past Forward Tour and some other tours with uh, Mikhail Breshnikov. And I, I, I feel very, very fortunate, especially during my time at IMG, to have been exposed to a broad variety of extraordinary arts. And at that time, you know, I was in my early 20s in New York City, and was very, very fortunate to work for Nancy Gabriel who had said, you know, go get a subscription to the Joyce Theater. And so many of our artists, we weren't just dance, you know, came to New York to perform all the time. And there were a lot of us about the same age and, you know, you work until seven o'clock, grab a slice of pizza and go see any performance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um and it was, it was an extraordinary couple of years of just absorbing as much as, as you could absorb. And I'm I'm fortunate to have that in my background.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. So interesting. Uh, Claire, when we were talking to you earlier this week, um, we talked a little bit about how the pandemic has shifted um, how one is capable of programming because, you know, Meg, you're saying like you had like in-person live interaction with these artists and that can kind of like spur these ideas. But, um, obviously during COVID theaters were shuttered. How are we, how are we pulling together programming for seasons, you know, post, I mean, we're not post COVID, but you know, post theaters being shut down. Um, how has that shift affected the work that you all do?
2: Yeah, I, uh, so just for context for meg we were talking about how um, it's been so interesting for me coming into this role um i stepped into this position at the beginning of 2020 so i only had a few about a month and a half before things shut down um so my exposure to a lot of the arts, um, companies that we've brought this season and that we're looking at bringing in the future has been through virtual programming, which um, on the one hand has been really beneficial because it's allowed me to kind of expand uh, my horizons without traveling um, outside of Houston. Uh, But we're also really looking forward to being able to get back to in-person conferences and festivals so that we can um, identify more artists, uh, that we'll be able to work with and see new, new performances and, and work.
1: Yeah. Was there anything specific that you found, um, online and were able to see that you maybe
2: wouldn't have otherwise? Um, well, I'll preview a piece that we are actually bringing during the 22, 23 season. Um, last, January so January 2021 um we attended APAP virtually um and I had the chance to see Third Coast Percussions piece Metamorphosis um and that's in partnership with Movement Art Is uh the the group founded by Lil Buck so they you know pioneering Jukin. Um, and it was a phenomenal piece. It worked virtually to see it, even though, you know, sometimes things don't always translate as well. Sure. And, um, you know, our director of artistic programming and I watched that, uh, both watched it at the same time and we were just blown away by the impact of the performance, by the uh by just the way that they communicated through the screen and we both were so excited by that piece and I can't wait to share it with Houston in next spring
0: yeah right uh Meg could you take us a little bit through the process of what it takes to curate an entire season (laughs) for a performing arts center I mean that is a huge undertaking I, I can't even imagine what it feels like to start at the bottom like start from scratch um but tell us about that. And in particular, what the challenges are for dance. I mean, obviously I imagine it's very different from, you know, we're, we're having, you know, New York Phil come, there are lots of things to take into consideration. So how, wh- when you're starting from the top, where do you, what do you do?
3: <laughs> it's so interesting the way you phrased that Michael, because I think you never really start from scratch. Mm-hmm. You know, okay. most of us that are um, in programming or in the position to Uh, program a season, have been in the industry for a while and have Mm -hmm. relationships that have developed and have Mm -hmm. artists that we've been watching and um, projects that we have heard about when they were just an idea and slowly, you know, it gets into the studio. So um, I honestly don't remember a time when I've ever put work on stage that I don't have a list of 20 to 30 projects that I'm interested in. And so then, you know, it's interesting being in Houston um, because we're in the center of the country and we do not own our venue. So we actually have to, we're residents within our venue, um, Mm. but it is a shared space. And so to a degree, it's a bit of a jigsaw puzzle because on the artist's point of view, they have to route tours where you're not hopscotching from LA to South Carolina to Chicago to, you know, they're trying to route a tour solely across the country so that they can minimize travel time and travel costs. So there are only certain times of the year that you're going to come through Houston. And then we only have certain availabilities. So it is this massive jigsaw puzzle of, you know, here's my list of 30 things I'm interested in. These are the dates that I have available what can, what can the artist do? When, when can you, um, get here? And so that, you know, directs some of it. And then, um, just part of presenting is, is being part of an extraordinary network of, uh, arts workers who mm-hmm. support and cultivate and celebrate, um, amazing artists on stage sharing the, the best things that humanity is capable of. And so that's really a fun part. And, you know, you read reviews. Um, I, an earlier question that you had asked Claire um, during my COVID time period, um, I appreciated the work that Kristen Brogdon was doing up at Northrop theater with Ragamala dance company. And um, and their residency uh, fires of Varanasi. And so that's another mm-hmm. piece that's um, coming to Houston next year. But it was really nice to sit in my living room and hear Aparna, um, you know, talk about the inspiration of the piece and the creation of it. And, you um, And, and so, you know, there are always these little influences and things you hear in different places and read about and videos that people send you. Um, And, you know, we all have networks of people who are going to other performances in other cities and agents do extraordinary work, you know, introducing us to new artists that we wouldn't know of otherwise. Um, So it, it really is an entire world that you just kind of plug into and keep rolling in. Right.
1: Agents is an interesting concept too because we've talked about it on the podcast. I don't think people, maybe audience members, realize that c- companies have agents that help reach out to people like you. To and what do they say? Like we have this program that we're you know we're going to be coming through Texas or we want to come through around this time. Is like how does that? How do those conversations start?
3: And it usually does take a lot of time. So you know I you develop a relationship with an artist. You start to understand their roster. What is their eye? Um, what are the types of artists that pique their interest? Um, and And again, they do an extraordinary job educating people and they're scouting the world, you know, finding an artist from New Zealand that maybe has never toured to the United States before or um, X,YZ. And then some companies simply don't have agents and and so you find out about it because, you know, maybe a presenter saw them at a festival uh, in Europe and is bringing them to the United States and is trying to build a tour. And do you want to join? Um, right. And so, I mean, truly, every company and artist has a different story and a different avenue to to getting to the stage. Yeah. And so, that's one of the reasons that being a presenter is so fun because mm-hmm. it's a different every day is is different.
1: Lots right. of logistics go into it. <laughs>
0: yeah. About how far in advance are we looking here and has that changed since COVID hit? I imagine you have to be more flexible with cancellations and, you know, maybe planning even further in advance or planning, you know, you have plans A, B, C, D instead of before A, B. I'm just curious to hear about that whole um, process. Maybe Claire, offer a little insight to start.
2: Well, I can definitely speak to kind of the uh, educational and extended programming that we do around shows, um, which, you know, often are built into the initial conversations that we have with artists, but are also often some of the most um volatile in terms of COVID and pandemic considerations, because a lot of those activities really do take the artists out into the community. So we have to mm-hmm. be even more, you know, we're unable to control the environment as much as we are when we're in our theater space. Sure. Um, And so keeping in mind that we want to make sure that the artists feel comfortable and that we're keeping everyone safe. That's, that's kind of, I think the piece that where we have to be the most flexible and might be making last minute game time decisions more often but we are really trying to build those conversations into initial um initial meetings with the artists so you know we're having conversations with artists that might be coming next fall um and already kind of thinking through what uh what we might be able to do with them in the community
1: yeah The 10th annual Lake Tahoe Dance Festival will be taking place this summer from July 27th through the 29th at venues in Tahoe City in Truckee, California for in-person audiences. This summer, the Lake Tahoe Dance Festival includes works by George Balanchine, Eric Hawkins, Constantine Becker, and more. Festival artists include Friends of the Pod, Ashley Bowder, Adrian Danching-Waring, Lloyd Knight, and Stephen Hanna. The festival begins on Wednesday, July 27th at 5 p.m. with the 10th Anniversary Gala Opening Night Celebration, where audiences will enjoy a silent auction with food and wine. The festival's main stage performances continue on July 28th at 6 p.m. in Tahoe City and on July 29th at 6 p.m. on West End Beach, Truckee, California. Tickets on sale now at laketahodancefestival.org or click the link in the description of this episode. what was the COVID experience? Like, I know we talk about it all the time with dancers and artistic directors, but from your perspective, you've spent years planning this programming, you've gotten everything in place and finally it's all ready. And then just have the, you know, it just completely torn out from underneath you. What was that like? And what kind of pivoting um, did you guys do initially? And then how much did it continue?
3: Great question, Rebecca. And um, it was hard. It was really, really hard. And I feel like there are so many things that I want to respond to that with. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, from a presenter point of view, particularly a presenter in Houston, Texas, we were still recovering from Hurricane Harvey, which completely decimated the theater district. Um, uh, The major theaters here in Houston went under renovation for um, more than a season. Um, and you know we were still trying to to recover from that and of course those became time periods where everything changed and we really started pounding the pavement, asking for philanthropic contributions to keep the arts organizations alive here in Houston. Um, and then the pandemic hit, right? You know, when you're feeling like we're finally putting this one crisis behind us, now we have another. Um, and it was really, really difficult. And actually I have this quote on my wall, start where you are, use what you have and do what you can, which is attributed to, and this one, Arthur Ashe, but, Um, I think a number of people have kind of changed it. And in COVID, it's like, okay, the curtain is down. People Mm -hmm. are not traveling. Um, Artists can't get here. Um, We had been really excited. I think we were two months away from giving the world premiere of Kyle Abraham's untitled Love that we were so excited to commission. And suddenly everything stopped. And then you're on the phone every day. And initially, we thought it was only going to be two weeks. So then you're like, okay, how many? Or two two months. Um, so then it's like, okay, what are our dates in September, October, November right. of twenty? And I think our uh, um, we finally, two weeks ago, had an untitled love here in Houston two years Mm -hmm. after the date that we were supposed to. And I think we had four dates in between where we just kept punting it down the road because we didn't know when it was over. Um, But from a presenter's point of view, I uh, vividly remember an executive committee meeting in April of 2020 where I had board members that did not think um and the quote isn't going to be there but queried whether we would make it out of the pandemic mm-hmm. and um and to be facing a reality where a 53 year old presenter um you know and that is quite a legacy in presenting mm-hmm. um, might not see it through the end of the pandemic was really really scary okay. um, and fortunately there was a lot of um uh, philanthropy from our board members and relief opportunities, but we laid off half of our staff um, and with our directors, Claire among them, uh, we started thinking creatively, what can we do? Like, where are we today and what can we do? Mm-hmm. And uh, we are thrilled. Like, I'm so proud of what we did launching new now, the Houston Artist Commissioning Project where. It actually evolved very slowly, and it was a project that we had been thinking about pre-COVID. But first, we did this thing we called Creative Connection, where we just asked people like, "Are you singing in your living room? Are you dancing in your backyard? Like, what are you doing to to be creative in this like really terrible time?" And that was fun just to participate in the community, and we shared all that uh, through social media channels. But then we um, commissioned Houston artists to create. Um, video shorts that we distributed through social media and then we graduated it to um, commission artists to create fully developed stage works um, of between 20 and 30 minutes and we ended up putting those on shared bills and those were our first performances back from COVID. We were still socially distanced in the theater and we had um, two different series of performances we uh, with shared bills of three different artists and three different genres. Uh, and so I think each night had spoken word music and dance. Wow. Wow. And it was really great to work locally because we thought by working locally, it would make it much easier mm-hmm. to do the, the residency and the creative conversations that were all virtual um, and ultimately get an artist into a theater again. And uh, it was really rewarding and it's a program that we will continue.
1: That's so interesting because I think like I work in digital marketing and I work with some ballet companies and ballet schools, like they have dancers as a part of their organization that could be sh- shown on these platforms digitally, etc. cetera. But you guys really, because you bring people in, then you don't own those videos, right? You know, so it's like you had such a unique challenge in that way to create content. And I love the idea that you went locally. So how, Claire, have some of those educational programs continued during this time um, now, now that we're back in the theater though, but how have those, have you kept that local element to your educational programming?
2: Yeah, we, you know, I think um, philosophically as an organization, we've always had a really strong commitment to our local artists. And that's definitely something that I um, hold as incredibly important in the work that we do. Um, So, you know, when we bring artists into town, there is really deep collaboration with um, fellow local arts organizations, cultural institutions, artists, community members, schools um, to make sure that we are providing special extended programs with our visiting artists that really address the interests and needs of our community So, you know, during COVID, we pivoted to virtual uh, programs. We did a lot of kind of virtual conversations and lectures with uh, some touring artists and then all of the local commission artists that we worked with. Um, We did a couple, you know, virtual masterclasses, pop-ins, trying to, you know, help uh, take the load off of uh, teachers that were doing hybrid and virtual teaching in the public schools Um, and as we have returned to in-person programs, it has sort of just been a constant conversation with all of these partners about what their comfort level is, what their community is looking for, and how we can best leverage the strengths of the artists that we're bringing to town while, um, while addressing those needs and questions. We have a really robust, um, community uh, education and community engagement committee um, that is made up of a large number of wonderful partners and um, advisors from across our city, you know, from collective impact organizations to the Botanic Garden, to um, fellow museums and dance companies, arts organizations. uh, That group really helps us uh, to steward the um the education experiences through through our visiting artists yeah
0: so let's talk a little bit specifically about new now the houston artist commissioning project it's currently accepting applications through june 12th who should be applying and and what, what exactly are you looking for
2: so the commissioning project is open to uh, artists that are local to Houston that are professional performing artists. Um, we have a really strong commitment to represent the diversity of our city on stage. So we highly encourage um, Black, Indigenous, artists of color, women artists, disabled artists, LGBTQ plus artists to apply For the commission. Um, It is open to all genres, all artists, artistic disciplines. So, you know, dance, music, theater, spoken word, multidisciplinary collaborations. We want to see it all. Um, And uh, we will be selecting three to four winners to have their work um, presented on stage here in Houston in February of 2023. So, really, anyone who creates work who, uh, you know, has an idea that would benefit from being put on a large stage, who's looking to leverage their career in the arts um, from their base in Houston, we would love to, we'd love to work with them.
3: And, you know, can I tell you a success story from the first time around? Um, Because maybe this generates an idea for who wants to apply. Here in Houston, we have... um, a gentleman named Harrison Guy, who has run Urban Soul Dance Company for the last 16 years. They've done extraordinary work. He's never toured. Um, really beautiful work. He's an African American man, black man. Um, and he has had an idea to put something on stage for a very long time, but had never had the resources or a stage big enough to give it the, um, the value and weight that it deserved. Mm-hmm. Um, and the piece was called Colored Carnegie. And it is about uh, the Black library that was created in Houston um, back in the late 1800s and was here until about 1960 um, and was the center of Black culture here in Houston. Uh, libraries stayed segregated even after the emancipation Uh, Which is so unfortunate, but it is a beautiful story that he completely utilized every opportunity that we were able to provide a big stage. He had beautiful sets built, gorgeous costumes. He hung and flew things in the space. Um, And again, you know, he had been presenting in smaller theaters and never really had the platform for the piece. Um, There are colored Carnegie libraries in cities throughout the country, and it is such an extraordinary, beautiful piece that he created. I, you know, my hope and dream is that eventually it is picked up and is able to tour, um, mm-hmm. particularly to other cities that have colored Carnegie's. Uh, but it is a a story about Black history that's critically important to the Black community, and um, to be able to participate in creating new work to, that goes into the dance canon um, that tells the story of black, black and brown bodies is is tremendously rewarding.
1: Wow. That's so exceptional. How great. I wanted to also bring up something that Claire, when we were chatting with you offline last week about a company that you guys are bringing, I think you maybe mentioned the U S for the first time next season. Is that right? Is that maybe I'm wrong. Is it the South African company?
2: It's not for the first time, but we are really excited to, to bring, um, Buyani Dance Theater, um, with their artistic director, George McComa. Um, I think Meg can speak to this piece more. She knows she's been really championing, um, uh, presenting this group and we're really excited about it. Yeah. Let's hear about it. Um, we are very
3: excited to bring this company. And in fact, I uh, first heard about them from a colleague of mine at the Kennedy Center, um, the Vice President of International Programming, Alicia Adams. Um, And uh, this piece is based on um, some South African literature. And uh, one of the, I think, extraordinary things is it takes Ravel's Bolero and it scores it for um, South African voices. And so Mm -hmm. the artists on stage it's, it is musical theater um, where there's acting, dancing, and singing that goes on. Uh, it's really a powerful, extraordinary piece. But yes, it has been presented at the Kennedy Center, I think, right after um, I left. And the, uh, it's been up to the Joyce Theater, co-presented it. And so I believe this will be their second time back in the country. Wow, um, not very think, much. Yeah, there are maybe six stops on the tour. So we're really wow. excited to bring them wow. to Houston.
0: That's so great. Yeah. I'm curious now um, to hear a little bit about the rebrand as Performing Arts Houston. As you said, um, you know, it's existed for 53 years. COVID was an extremely challenging time. What made you feel like you wanted to put another challenge on your plate?
3: (laughs) 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 Um, Going back, your time just shifted and like pivot, pivot is such a, such a almost overused word, but You know, um, do what you can. And when I came to Houston three, three and a half years ago, it was already part of the conversation. I think there were some sensitivities, particularly to the word society and whether or not um, that was as welcoming today as um, we want to be. And, you know, language changes a little bit and um, uh, things change. So the conversation had started and we did, we completed a strategic plan. Uh, toward the earlier months of COVID. And it was something that we had started, you know, well before, before COVID. And we had talked about our identity. One of the problems that we have here is that we are resident of Jones Hall, but we present in many theaters uh, in the theater district and throughout Houston. And Mm -hmm. so frequently we would bring people to Houston and, and, our name would get lost and, you know, people Mm -hmm. would say, Oh, I went to Alvin Ailey and it's, Oh, we presented that. Oh, who are you? (laughs) And, Uh, um, you know, they see Alvin Ailey, but they don't necessarily see performing arts Houston. So in our strategic plan, we said, we really need to work on our identity. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so we just leaned into it. We had, you know, a little bit more time because we weren't reading technical writers and, um, you know, making sure that everything that was needed to get a performance on stage. to happen, and uh, we identified a firm up in Cincinnati. Go Dutch; they're extraordinary, and we had a wonderful time with them. And we said, "Look, we need to look at our entire brand strategy, and we want to look at everything from keeping our name um, to completely changing it to something out mm-hmm. of the box, and right. then and the whole identity system that goes with that." and uh, and it was, it was really a wonderful, collaborative um, th- th- experience that mm. uh, we all loved. Like, it was a lot of fun. It was a great, mm. great project to work on. And really, at the end of the day, we just ghosted the word society, because Houston yeah. kind of dabbled in and out of our name. So right. um, it's, we just dropped society from Society for the Performing Arts, and now we're mm. Performing Arts Houston.
0: It makes so much sense to me. Um, you know I, I hadn't made that connection but your programming is so inclusive and about you know showing all these different facets of the arts and dance in particular that um just that little word you know kind of can society can bring forth like this if you're if i think people can be afraid of the arts or like think that it's an elitist thing mm-hmm. so when you hear that, that word, it's like, oh, well, it's a, it's a club that maybe I can't be a part of. I ne- I never thought of it until you mentioned, but I think the new name reflects exactly who you are, which is like, as we talk about all these different things, it's about bringing a, a vast array of different, um, theatrical forms to your community. So I, I am yeah. a staunch supporter.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Another thing is that our acronym was SPA. And while the arts are therapeutic, um, we do not offer massages. And believe it or not, we actually, I mean, in Google searches, you know, you just think about how we purchase tickets now. Um, it's on our phone. And a lot of people knew us as SPA. And when you try to Google SPA, um, you get all the massage parlors around town and we used to get phone calls (laughs) like what are your rates
1: (laughs) i actually did it this morning because i was looking up spa houston and that's exactly what came up and i was like no 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 society for the performing (laughs) you know what it's practical things that have to be put into consideration um tell us too about some of the work that you guys are putting into your building in the coming years
3: (laughs) Um, That is another super exciting project to work on. So we are residents of Jones Hall. Jones Hall is owned by the city of Houston. Um, It was built in 1966 and Society for the Performing Arts, now Performing Arts Houston, um, was birthed with the opening of Jones Hall. And the vision there um, through really extraordinary community members that were committed to um, developing Houston as a world-class city with world-class arts. Um, you know, we were created to to bring the best, most accomplished artists from around the world here to Houston, so that the citizens of Houston had that um, available to them. Um, the building is is remarkable it's very unusual at the time when we opened um, they say it was the most technologically advanced uh theater in the country um Mm. in that our ceiling can be elevated and lowered so we can be if elevated um above a balcony on almost 3000 seat theater and if you lower it we can um, reduce the capacity of the hall to 1700 seats um, And I think when it was built, there were actually curtains at the back of the orchestra where you could reduce it even down to um, just below a thousand seats. Um, And we share the space with... Uh, the houston symphony and so here we're a multidisciplinary presenter bringing in stomp and ailey and you know big shows that have uh fly systems and um you know side lights and all sorts of things and then there's also an orchestra shell and just over time there are many many things that um need to be developed. Um, And maybe I'll call out too, prior to the pandemic, we still had continental seating. So if you think of going into almost any theater in the country, um, you have aisles that go through the orchestra that make it easy to to get in and out of your seats. And of course, who doesn't love like, yes, I got an aisle seat
0: Um,
3: (laughs) at, at, um, in Jones Hall, we didn't have aisles. And early in the pandemic, uh, a group of us got together and we stood on stage and we looked into the orchestra and we identified that the seats were aligned in such a way that we could just take out three seats in every row and it would be a very clean um, aisle. Oh. Just you know, And so we put two aisles in at the very beginning of COVID. Um, but beyond that, I think in the 60s, um, people maybe uh, d- didn't drink as much as they did today. I don't know, but um, <laughs> there aren't very many restrooms in our building and they're very uh-huh. difficult to get to because um, maybe people just didn't expect that they were going to use the restroom when they came to the theater for the evening. And so, I mean, one of the biggest things we're going to do is really improve the patron experience and and make create larger lobby spaces that um, reduce pinch points. And allow people to very comfortably gather before and after the performance during intermission. Um, and we're going to make that path to the restroom much clearer, cleaner, and um, and Essential. increase the number of restrooms. Um, and also major acoustic improvements in the hall, which have, have started being made already, which are exciting.
1: Very good.
0: Yeah, that sounds sounds great i mean it's so funny it's really reminded me I haven't thought of this but like I don't even remember what year it was when um New York State theater became the david Koch theater with those renovations but they had it was the same thing I totally forgot about that like crawling over bodies <laughs> to get to the center of the orchestra level you know um yeah but that, i mean it sounds like I mean, it's going to be so great.
3: It it has been interesting to learn about code. Um, And so, for example, because of the continental seating, I think we had 32 doors to get in and out of the theater Um, Mm -hmm. because, you know, you go to the door and within any door, there were four rows that would be seated, you know, A, Mm -hmm. B, C, and D. And then the next door seats, E, F, G, H Mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, So by putting larger aisles in it gives us the opportunity to close the majority of the doors and if you think about it we don't have um uh, double doors here uh, yeah it's so when you open the door to the lobby all of the light and sound that's in the lobby comes right into the theater right. and if you think of those doors opening and closing throughout a performance it's really distracting right um, and so, and so those are some of the acoustic, like the the sound and light bleed is really going to be cut down, which we're just super excited wow. about.
1: And when are you guys starting this project?
3: We started it last summer. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So we, we started with some acoustic improvements last summer and we will do it during the summers over the next um, three years. So we're hoping to wrap up in 24, 25.
1: Wonderful. That's great. So tell us, um, just before we finish off today, um, we talked about some of the things that are coming in your 22, 23 season, but give us some more of, um, the dance highlights that, uh, we can expect to see and maybe how people can
2: get tickets.
3: Thank you for that opportunity. And Claire, Claire, why don't you lead with your favorites?
2: Oh, well, um, we do have some really wonderful dance performances coming this season. I am super excited um, that we're bringing um, Dance Theater of Harlem back to Houston. It's been several years since they've been um, in town with us. Um, we are going to be doing some really great education um, residency activities with the company as well. So um, that's in development and we're really excited about that. So that's one um we're also bringing Cloud Gate Dance Theater of Taiwan um, in partnership with Asia Society and uh, Taiwan Academy of Houston. So that is another um, another show that I just can't wait to see. They were last in Houston, I believe, in 2014. Um, so for a lot of folks, it's going to be their first chance to get to see them. And um, wow. that's really wonderful. Yeah, it's going to be a beautiful, beautiful um, performance. So I think those are my two highlights, probably. Yeah. How about you, Meg?
3: We are excited to bring in these international companies. So Cloudgate from Taiwan and Gregory McComas, um, Viani Dance Theater from South Africa. Uh, we're bringing Ragamala in um, uh, Bharat Natyam Indian Dance via Minneapolis. Um, of course, Movement Art is, as Claire had mentioned, comes with Third Coast Percussion, uh, we also are bringing Diablo, which some people don't necessarily consider them to be a dance company, but it's definitely movement architecture, which um, with, is dance adjacent. So worth mm-hmm. worth talking about. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm sure I'm forgetting something, but... Uh,
1: but it's all on your beautiful new website, which I love your your new website. It's so gorgeous <laughs> with the rebrand.
3: Thank you. And of course, we are most certain to have dance in our new now Houston Artist Commissioning Project. And we look forward to whatever that will be as yet undetermined.
1: Well, we hope that anyone listening, if they have a big idea, that they will go ahead and apply before June 12th. And thank you guys so much for joining us. It's so great to catch up with you guys and hear about the wonderful things happening in Houston.
3: And thank you for continuing your terrific Conversations on Dance podcast. You always bring great conversations to the table. It's a pleasure to be here with you.
1: Thanks so, thank much. You. so much. Thank you.